Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. We probably should think about how we serve this audience better. And the only way to know that is to have reporters going into communities that we don't necessarily, maybe we never thought was super important before. If the system you're in isn't working, fix it. If you're not covering the audience you should be, change what you're doing. If you encounter a barrier in one direction, maybe it's time to blaze a new path of your own. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. With stops at NBC, CNN, and HBO Sports, among many others, Soledad O'Brien has been a television reporter, producer, and anchor. In January, she and Jean Chatsky launched the Everyday Wealth podcast, focusing on personal finance, the economy, wealth management, and other financial topics. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Hi there. Nice to talk to you. You know, I kind of hopped, skipped, and jumped over your introduction. You've been a lot of places and done a lot of things. How'd you first get interested in journalism? I think that's a nice way of saying I'm old. I've been around a while. (laughs) Oh, you're not as old as me. I got into journalism because I decided not to get into medicine. I was in college and I had sort of, you know, kind of done the pre-med path, certainly pre-med courses, but also been a candy striper, worked in a pharmacy, you know, kind of like I've got all the pieces of the resume and I was taking organic chemistry with my sister. She's a surgeon now. And I just remember she used to ask me, she's like, why do you memorize all this stuff? Like you should be able to deduce a lot of it. And I remember thinking like, gosh, I just literally no idea how I do that. And I think her point was, you're not really passionate about it. Like you're very good. And I was really good at memorizing and regurgitating. And it just kind of scared me into like, gosh, do I want to spend my life doing something that I'm just not clearly not that passionate about? So I didn't really know what to do. I, I left school. I started working at a TV station, WBZ TV. And that was really how I got into TV it was just a default. I thought, like, I like to write. I'm good at it. I think I could do this. And I got an internship at that TV station. And then I was hired to be a production assistant. And I think that was kind of my entree in. I realized like, oh, I'm doing whatever I was doing, getting people lunch, running scripts, you know, every step of the way was kind of exciting and interesting. I became a a TV writer, which was, I mean, I was the queen of the 32nd, you know, three alarm fire, and then an associate producer, which is really kind of helping get something on the air, and then a producer. And even as I was sort of at those starting levels, I could kind of see the jobs that were interesting and intriguing to me and the things that I wanted to do. So I just thought it was fascinating. And so from the get-go, even when I was running scripts and you know getting coffee and things like that, which weren't super compelling jobs, I just loved being part of a machine you know, where the big job was to go and do stories, et cetera, et cetera. So I loved it and I loved it from the get-go. And I don't think I would have figured that out if I had not just ditched my plan and gone and tried something else. Well, and at least your parents have one doctor, I guess. <laughs> two doctors. Family, so that two. Do- oh, well. Actually, uh, three, do- four doctors if you're counting in-laws, son and daughter-in-laws, and a lot of lawyers. So yeah, I was the I was the only. <laughs> well, you you did pretty well. <laughs> worked out I, so I far. We can, you never know. It's worked out exactly, exactly. They're not coming to get you yet. I mean, what type of stories appeal to you? What are the things, that, the types of things you want to report? It took me a long time to really figure that out because at the beginning what appeals to you is the stories that are, I'm not sure how you put this, you'll know, because I'm sure this is, you know this, right? Which is, they're the stories that put you on the fast track. 
So you don't want to be stuck with this story. You want to be on that story because people are in that story, move to the next level. And so at the beginning, I often was given sort of like community hospitals, opening stories, a ribbon cutting here stories, which weren't super compelling because they were just a fact and there was no story there. Like we would think about uh, what's the story. And then because everybody else was covering well, at the time we just started going into Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. So there were sort of these other really interesting stories to cover that I wasn't at first allowed to get on. And then eventually I could get to those stories. So at first, that's what I wanted to cover. What is something that's considered the big breaking story? You know, the interesting story that I'll be able to have some opportunities to flex a little bit and try things and learn more. And then as I started anchoring, I started being the morning reporter where you cover everything, right? And then you did have the big story. And usually you had no information because it was five o'clock in the morning and you're doing live shots, but you were on the story in some capacity. And I think over time, you know, asking me that question right now in my life, I really like character-centered stories. I really like finding human beings who are doing interesting things and getting access to those people through their trust, through the opportunity, as opposed to, I need some proximity to power. I need access. I was all well, this is something I've been thinking about, having watched the White House Correspondents' Dinner the other day, a little, little bits of it, clips of it. You know, like I think there's a lot of this idea of the joy of having proximity to power, and so many of the stories I do have no proximity to power at all. They have proximity to people who have something interesting that's happening in their lives. I've met people that that's part of their motivation, that they like being, you know, I'm in on it. Maybe I'm not the decision maker, but I'm the person who's in that room where, you know, the decision maker is talking or or is doing something. I was watching uh, the John Oliver show. They had a clip of you at, I guess it was the dump where they dumped all that shale. It was a woman's house, right? Shingle Mountain. That was in north of Dallas, I think, or maybe Dallas, yeah. That's a compelling story in so many different ways. Just what this woman and the people in her community were facing is compelling enough. But then when you sort of up it up to the next, take it up to the next level where you're talking to the people who are responsible for doing it and you look at the, you know, how that connects with other things that are going on in the system about, yeah, well, the reason they dump it there is because they're not going to dump it in a white person's neighborhood. So, you know, that little key that opens up the larger narrative, you know, that's something I always always attracted me to to reporting. What skill? I think we all have a, we kind of get to a point, you know, as we develop our confidence that we sort of identify our skill. What is your skill? What is the thing that you know when you walk outside your apartment that, okay, I've got that with me always? I think I have a couple. One probably most important one for life and work has been I'm very resilient. So I, I have a plan A, If it fails, I will literally turn around and give you my plan B. I have a plan C. I have a plan D. Something goes really wrong. I will cry like a baby for a solid two hours. And then I'll start writing lists. Well, you know, here's what I think is the upside of that terrible thing that just happened. It's nauseating optimism about kind of the next thing. And I think that's been a very valuable thing in work because certainly for a reporter, as you know, right, you go out thinking you're doing this story. Turns out your story is completely different. It's this story. And you have to just constantly think on your feet and be very quick about that. And so I think I, I do that pretty well. But also just in how life goes or how your career goes or even in opportunities that come your way, I'm pretty good at like, huh, okay, that sounds interesting. I've always thought that that could be something that could get me to the next thing over here. And so I don't think that's true for a lot of people, but it's been very helpful in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Resiliency. That's something that that I didn't even think about. You could be resilient and bawling too. Like I will cry. I'm a crier. So I will cry and cry. And then I'll be like, but 
Actually. <laughs> but actually, Mr. President, yeah, exactly. uh, I think of you dread failure, at least and let me talk from my point of view, because I'm, I'm somebody who suffers from anxiety. And the thing that you dread when it suddenly occurs and you're living it, and then suddenly it's, this isn't as bad and this is actually, it's freeing. Now I can move on to the next thing to eventually becoming anxious about. But anyway, you mentioned the, the correspondence dinner. You tweeted out something about Trevor Noah, his sort of wrap up at the end where he, you know, after a night of making jokes at, you know, politicians and, and journalists. And Chuck Todd. And Chuck Todd. There's a lot in that statement. You tweeted out his comments. What did that sort of say to you? What did that mean to you to hear somebody say that? That it's empowering, but, you know, it's also kind of critical in a way. Yeah, I think it's so basic. One of the things I've always hated about the White House Correspondents' Dinner and what I find frustrating sometimes about journalists today is they just lack humility and they lack this idea of like, we're all going through and we're trying to figure out the story. We're trying to get to the truth. You know, when you watch Maggie Haberman have a Twitter fight with somebody, right? You just don't get the sense that this is a humble reporter trying to navigate her way to tell the story right for her readers. And so same with, I think Chuck Todd's another good example. I thought Trevor Noah was right on the money when he mocked him actually. So I find all of that very, very frustrating. And I think the White House Correspondents' Dinner is a way to celebrate your proximity to power, right? It's such a weird, I mean, especially at this time that we're in right now, which is a really sort of crazy time sort of in terms of government and in terms of democracy and in terms of rules of law, this idea that everyone's just going to go, like, we're just going to go put on some nice dresses and party together just seems so odd to me. I've covered many, many stories and some that have been really challenging. And I've had many good relationships and sometimes bad relationships with people, even in all in the same story. Sometimes I'll bring everybody together and we'll screen the documentary, right? But I, the idea, like, I would just wouldn't put on a gown and go to a party with the people I'm supposed to be covering that might be a really serious aggressive way of holding them accountable, right? I just wouldn't do it. It's such a weird thing to me. I mean, I get it. The New York Times actually wrote a really good thing about why they don't attend. They haven't attended the White House Correspondents' Dinner for a long time. And I thought it was a really good writing about like why they think it's inappropriate. And I agree with that. It has the nickname of, of the nerd prom. And it's this sort of idea that there's this, there's this normality. Have people forgotten that that event didn't happen or it didn't happen in a way because the star of the show decided he didn't want to show up. Even the name nerd prom is right. It's, it's actually a way to congratulate yourself because you're, you're wonky and you're smart and you're thoughtful. And most journalists are not like most journalists are, are not very, they're just not, you know, and you have Fox news sitting there and a lot of those people, even as their producers or whatever, like they're part of a thing that is a massive misinformation machine. I do not like to go to these fraudulent events, frankly, at the end of the day, it's supposed to be about scholarship and the amount of money they give away in scholarships is pathetically small. It's actually tiny. I run a scholarship program. I send girls to college and we pay for it. Mine is so much bigger than what they give. Well, I'm an individual, you know, it's ridiculous. So the whole thing is wrapped in this veneer of it's a scholarship program for journalists. And it really is just messy. <laughs> also, you, you think of how many awards journalists give themselves. That's always an, another great thing. But something I've been thinking about lately is the word elite as it applies to journalists. And, and I'm seeing it more and more in people's conversations and the criticism of journalism. And again, this ties to so many other, other things. You know, the nerd problem is, a, is sort of indicative of it, this idea that there's this brotherhood or whatever that is, you know, mainstream journalism. You know, we're the ones who are 
you know, whatever. We're the establishment journalism, I guess it's the best way to put it. And, you know, we've got this. And it's clear that they haven't got this. You know, you mentioned Chuck Todd, and the reason I want you to put a pin in is it was, there were a lot of people who were really, really frustrated with his inability to call, you know, people out as liars. He's not good at his job. There's actually a, 10 other people at NBC News that they could tap to do that job, and he's just not good at it. But but he's very, gets very offended. You know, I just, well, I don't know, I don't know what to say. It just is what it is. It is what it is. What are your thoughts about the current state of, of journalism? You know, I'm very encouraged by young journalists because I think they are so interesting and the work that they're doing is, is I, I find them, and maybe because they're young and they're not really necessarily connected and maybe they don't have a mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, that I, I find that they are very interested in finding the truth of a story. So many of the young journalists I know, and I go up to like age 35, kind of for young, you know, are just aggressive and dedicated. And I think there's also a lot of really good places where there's great journalism. I love the Marshall Project. I love Heckinger Report. I mean, I think there's just so many, you know, where you have people who are just trying to figure out not just we're going to repeat what this person who's a source has told me uncritically and just serve it up. And did, in fact, that source say X? Yes. Right. So you're not wrong, but <laughs> it's also not quite accurate in terms of the context of the conversation you're having. So I, I do think there's a lot of good journalism out there, too. I just think you have some in mainstream press, you have some and certainly maybe to be more accurate, political press, you have some really terrible lead people and they're just not good. And, and I thought a good example was when all those anchors at CNN were basically crying in their soup over the departure of Jeff Zucker and on, on camera, and obviously with no sense of objectivity around like, here's a person who did something and was asked to leave his job, et cetera, et cetera. It just was so weird, right? To have this heartrending thing on camera uh, I just think it's messy. So I, I feel really badly for some of the places that I think used to do a really good job. I really liked working at CNN. I liked watching CNN for a long time. I think a lot of stuff is pretty messy right now. What's problematic is you have these institutions that write a lot on on their history and aren't, you know, as quick or is maybe willing to, you know, call a liar a liar to decide we're not going to cover this story because there is no story and just sort of play a role in this idea. I, I know for the longest time, there was just this, this sort of wrenching undertone of, you know, trying to come to grips with the idea of objectivity and balance and how the poor way with which people were employing that and how it kind of contributed to a lot of stories that weren't actually telling the truth in a way. Yeah, I think objectivity has often been you know, are you, if you're making someone uncomfortable, right, maybe you're not being objective. And so it's why they'll say, well, you know, a person who's been a victim of sexual assault shouldn't cover sexual assault, right, which is just insane. I mean, I'm, I'm a much bigger fan of transparency. I'd much rather understand so-and-so was a GOP operative. So-and-so was a Democratic senator. This person over here has been, you know, has five kids who are disabled and might have some interesting insight, right? If I was going to go and report a story about hearing somebody who's got hearing loss or somebody who's deaf, you know, you might want to know that I have a kid who's been dealing with that. So I have a certain amount of expertise in that area. And I, I certainly bring something to the table in that conversation. Does it make me biased? I don't know. I, I certainly I have a kid who's deaf. I've got a point of view on it certainly have something to add about it. So it's much more interesting to have transparency about where this person's coming from and hope that your reporters are 
where they need to be objective is in, as they approach the conversation, are, do they have an open mind? That's really what I'm looking for. Are you open-minded about what people are going to talk to you about? Also, you know, you even see it sometimes. Reporters value people who are well-off and people who are upper middle class and middle class more than if you're poor. And if, you know, God forbid, if you don't speak English well, or you come across as, as uneducated, there are plenty of people who are not formally educated, who are very, very smart who could, you know, walk circles around everybody else around certain topics, right? Right. But in a way, their their voice is a bit ignored. So yeah, I think it's not unusual for reporters to sort of feel like, well, we know, I know, you know, here's what this story should be. And I'm going to ignore the people who might have something else to say. And that speaks to the the larger conversation. I mean, you, you said, was it 91 you said you started? I started in 87 at WBC TV, right? I wish it were the 90s, but no, it was the 80s. (laughs) Your hair would be longer. Right, right. You know, puffed out. You'd be a hell of a lot more energy. You could stay up late. Right, right. All that that stuff. Music was better, too. Yes. Um, But you've been at several major outlets doing lots of different types of big stories during a significant period of time when our industry was changing. Yeah. And the makeup of what the newsroom was was very different than what it is now. How did you see that change or how have you seen that change? Shockingly, not that much, actually. I think the number of like Latino journalists has actually dropped. It's gone down in that time. It's kind of crazy. So, you know, and again, if you look at not just who's on TV, the face, but we both know where the real power is, right? The power is around how should we think about the story? How should we frame the story? By the time the anchor gets it, you have a lot of leverage and leeway to weigh in on it, massage it, move it around. But you know, by then the rundown or kind of like, here's what the organization has decided is important, that's kind of out of your hands. I think that's where the real power is. And I think a more interesting question is even just, well, who are the journalists who are in those that power structure around the table when story selection is done? And I think you wouldn't see a lot of change. I don't think anybody for a moment thought that there was gonna be a black woman who'd be considered to take over when Jeff Zucker left CNN, right? We just kind of knew they're going to slot in, you know, yet another white dude who's, who's a great guy. I mean, I think he's fine, but you know, I don't think there's some a massive amounts of diversity to pull from, which is crazy because there really should be. People often talk about the pipeline issue. And unfortunately, you know, I don't think it's a thing. I think you find a pipeline and you build a pipeline when you are able to, you know, when you have to, when we did our, our latest project, Black and Missing, which is running on on HBO, and even the project we're doing now that'll run on Peacock, which is a documentary about Rosa Parks. Those are Black women directors that we've been able to find. Like, they're not not like hiding in a place. It's not you have to train them from the beginning. These are people who are out here who are doing stuff. 100%. You just have to have interesting work and you have to pay them competitively, like you pay everybody. So, you know, I think it's one of those things that if you want to do it, you can do it. It's one of the reasons that when I started working with Gene Chatsky, or even when we started doing Matter of Fact, I wanted to be involved in real conversations with people who I thought were good and were credible and were smart and were very interested in, you know, Gene is very intentional about raising women's awareness about money. She doesn't slide it in at the end. She doesn't sort of say, and yeah, don't, let's not forget women. She's like, she is centered around it. And I really like that. I like that, you know, that's something that she's very proud of and and smart about. And I think matter of fact, the same thing, we're very proud of how we are diverse in our coverage. So we talk about it a lot and we do it a lot and we measure it a lot because we think it's important. That's why we do it. Yeah. I I just interviewed somebody (laughs) <laughs> on this very topic about one of the larger news 
chains, you know, radio and, and local newspaper chains. This was going to be their priority. They were going to change the way, you know, they hired people. They were going to change the makeup of their newsroom at all levels, not because it was it would look good or that we're checking a box. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do, understanding that our audience does not reflect what our, our structure is. How can we can we interest people in our coverage if we don't reflect what they are or we're aware of their experiences due to our, our own life experiences? I mean, it's a way to win. Listen, if you, if you and I move to, and I have no idea where this would be, a town where 90% of the people are interested in NASCAR, right? You and I go there and we decide we're going to start a TV show together, right? If at some point we don't say, boy, everybody here seems to be interested in NASCAR, we probably should think about how we serve this audience. We want to make sure that the audience is getting something from us, that they have needs and they have interests and we need to serve them. And I think for a long time, TV audiences, and certainly CNN's a good example, I worked there for a long time, You know, we had this idea of like, what we really want are white people who have a certain amount of money, they're valuable to us, You know, as opposed to saying, well, the audience is actually quite broad. There's a lot of people and, and there's a lot of people who know a lot of people. And we probably should think about how we serve this audience better. And the only way to know that is to have reporters going into communities that we don't necessarily, you know, haven't, maybe we never thought was super important before, but actually they exist. You know, they have the potential They have TVs. We know that they get our content. Maybe we should think about serving them as well. When we did Black in America for CNN, people would tell me one person, not people, one person. <laughs> it was one person. To be honest. It was because he said, well, just remember, don't make it too Black. Hmm. And, and I, and, but I knew what he meant, right? Which was like, yeah. don't, you know exactly what that is. Don't do a thing that's going to mess up our audience that we really value, right? And our audience that we really value is, you know, the CNN audience, it's 60 something white dudes, basically. And what you found was because I think the audience is so much more thoughtful than sometimes we give them credit for, right? That actually the, the audience that we had was interested in well-told stories about diverse communities that were in their community anyway, that they wanted to see them. So I sometimes think when executives sit around and try to figure out like, well, here's what the audience wants. It actually, you know, the audience wants to be in the world that they live in and the world they live in is very diverse. Right. And it's almost as if Many newsrooms are just kind of waking up to this idea, oh, yeah, America is changing. Maybe we ought to do something about it. Why can't we figure out how to cover these audiences? Well, and there are people who are doing it. And, and I share your enthusiasm for younger people. I'm, I'm sharing your enthusiasm for people who are being entrepreneurial, you know, starting types of platforms that are, you know, targeted to telling stories at particular audiences because that's, you know, they've been underserved. And, you know, just being able to identify that. You know, about a year ago, you testified at a congressional hearing. It was called Fanning the Flames, Disinformation and Extremism in the Media. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience. I enjoyed it. It was four hours sitting on a chair, which was less enjoyable because you can't leave a congressional testimony. Like once you're in and they check you in, you're in. You know, but it was also a little bit of charades, right? I feel like a little bit of a show. I felt like a lot of the questions were just really for the, the elected officials to be seen asking the question, you know, versus a couple of people had really good questions. But for the most part, it was sort of, I mean, one point somebody's like, didn't you go to Ferguson? And I was like, I think you confused me with the other black people that you've seen. Sorry. You know, so I obviously I've done some reporting at Ferguson, but I actually did not, was not at CNN at that time. So I did not go with the network. So, you know, I think it's just, I'm not sure what was accomplished, I guess I would, I would say. 
So tell me, I mean, you have your own company. You're creating your own content. Tell me about being an entrepreneur in this space. I've really enjoyed it. It's very hard. I do think there's a lot of space to do good work. And I think there's a lot of buyers who are looking for good work. Weirdly, all the things that, you know, a lot of these TV networks could do, news networks are the things that we're now taking and selling to networks that are not news, right? So for example, Black and Missing, you know, which really could just be a whole section of a TV news reporting. You know, part of the reason that was a project was because it's not done on the news. It wasn't covered. And so it was kind of interesting to me that that ended up being a multi-part series on HBO because newsrooms miss these people so frequently. So I think a lot of the work that I do is kind of like news and undercovered voices and people who are left out of news coverage and stories that are, I think have a lot of, you have the ability to be pretty thoughtful and dig into the context on the stories. And I, I find that's harder and harder to do it in the newsroom. How does that work? Are you, you know, are you the CEO? Are you making decisions all the way down? Yeah, I was the, I was the CEO. I hire every single person. We are involved in decisions in every which way we have couple of different verticals. So we uh, there's a whole chunk that's just talent. So I anchor some shows that we don't produce. We co-produce our show for Hearst, but there are shows that I do our radio show. Uh, I'm not a producer of that show. I'm talent for that show. Jean and I co-anchor that show together. That's called Everyday Wealth. And then there's projects that are what we would consider journalistic projects. So documentaries that are really going to sort of probably be an hour long doc. And then we have projects that are, I consider, more development. So series that we're selling to networks that run series, like a Netflix or streamers or things like that. And so I think that we have kind of these different sort of categories, but I oversee all of them. And then I have people, obviously, who run each area. It's interesting that, that you're so involved in, in the company, but also that you're still, you know, your talent, you're also doing the reporting, covering Insane. some of these stories. So much work. <laughs> so much work. Because any you know, one I, of those. I love the reporting part. It'd be easy to step away from it, but I really, really enjoy it. I really like, I like development because I think, you know, one thing we leverage is kind of, we pick the stories that I'm interested in. And so I have to be involved in that. For our docs, we obviously, sometimes I'm reporting those docs. Uh, sometimes I'm not reporting or maybe just be voicing the docs. So in addition to overseeing it, I'm also often just heavily involved in the process of it. So yeah, it's a lot of work. It's crazy. <laughs> so to sort of go back to what you were talking before about your optimism about young reporters, I had an experience about a week and a half ago because I'm a local reporter and I got invited to a uh, career fair and I've done that before. And I can tell you, most kids aren't particularly interested in talking to a reporter. They want to talk to the, the zookeeper, the pilot and the firefighters. And well, there was some guy with a drum set, but this sixth grade girl made a beeline to my table and she had a huge smile on her face and she wanted to be a, a reporter. She wanted to be a TV reporter. And I asked her, why do you want to be a TV reporter? And she says, because sometimes people don't say the truth. You know, I want to do that. I want to. She could anchor meet the press. Give her the job. Oh, my God. What, sixth grade? I think she could swing that with her homework. Well, she's already doing. Yeah, with her homework. Well, you haven't seen the, the standards of learning tests. And it's a lot of, a, lot of, a lot of studying. But she, I mean, it was really heartening because she had all the things in talking to other journalists that they talk about. Yeah, I was the the nerd in fifth grade who was you know, doing radio in my basement or who was, you know, putting together a, a flyer of news around the school or whatever. So, I mean, the, those kids are out there and 
I tend to be optimistic. I, I always think that journalists are optimistic because if they weren't optimistic, then, you know, why would doing something? Because we believe that doing something, reporting on something is going to make a change. Right, right. I was having, I'm interviewing a reporter, really great reporter for a project I'm doing. And we were just talking exactly about that, like impact, you know, and she's had a lot of impact. And I mean, she's so humble, right? She's just the opposite of the other people I was mentioning earlier. She's just so humble that, you know, if you say, well, you're the person who got that done, this thing that happened, you did it. And she would just be like, well, no, there's a lot of people and I didn't. And, you know, I just really admired her humility when actually it is her, her, she's a pit bull. She just doesn't let go of something when she gets in on it. And so it was really fun to, to have a chance to interview her. Yeah. Every reporter, every good reporter has experiences in their lives that they can look and they say, yeah, that, that wasn't there because I told that story. That wasn't there because I, or that was, that is there because I, I talked to this person and reported about it. And that's the ultimate high, I guess, in this field yeah. <laughs> that you can affect change. I feel like we're kind of drawn to an end here. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I'd love to talk about our radio show because I know they're the folks who booked it. And it's a good example for me. One of the things that I was interested in because I hadn't really reported on, on finance. And, and I told everybody that I was like, listen, if you're looking for someone who's going to give you a deep dive into where to invest their money, I'm literally not that person. But I was getting very, two things I was interested in. One was the idea of just the platform. I like radio and I hadn't done much in radio. So I was interested in exploring just radio as a platform. It's very different, obviously, than TV news. Cable TV is different than broadcast. But also, I think what was really interesting for me with Everyday Wealth was this idea that like your money is not just this number in your account. It's like, what kind of life do you want to lead? And as we're talking about reporting, right, it's, this, it's like, what kind of reporter do you want? What is valuable to you? What is successful to you? For some people, they're going to say, I was in the front row at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, right? And that is a win. They, they won. You know, that's never been kind of how I measured my success. And I think one of the things that I was interested in with the show in addition to working with Gene Chatsky, who I've worked for with for over many years, who's great. You know, it's always nice to have a great co-anchor. <laughs> I've had some not great ones, though. You don't have to carry everything. Not even that. They're just, you know. But is this idea of how do you get to the life you want to lead? Like, how do you use your money as a tool? You know, so it's not a win because you have X numbers in the bank. It's you're living near your parents. And so as they reach the end of their life, you're able to be helpful to them or you are in a position where you can help people and you donate money to scholarships or, you know, because you've been smart about your finances, it's not about the number. It's about how do you get to what you want to accomplish in life? And that was far more interesting to me. I talk a lot about my, my parents and all the mistakes we made when they were elderly. We really, I mean, we did some things really right, but a lot of things really wrong because we didn't talk about finance with them. And by the time, you know, they were really old and frail, they didn't want to, you know, you should think about all that in your 70s, right? And not your 80s. So I, I often talk about, you know, what I did wrong. Or even we had a conversation the other day about running a, a small business or, or one the other day where I was talking about negotiating. And, I, you know, I had, it was um, Larry King who told me that you could negotiate for the plane. Who knew? I was telling another reporter that today. I'm like, yeah, like when I was there, this is a long time ago now, like you could say like, I want six weeks of vacation and I'm going to need five personal days and I'm going to need this much money. But he's like, well, you know, you can ask for like slots on the plane. I had no idea. 
so, you know, we try to have conversations where we really delve into, you know, what are you trying to accomplish in life and not just, you know, listen, I, I finally got that number to 99 and that's what I wanted. And especially with money, you know, people are always funny about how they think about it. <laughs> you know, they don't envision it the way that you said that this is actually the thing that's going to you know, determine the rest of your life. But of course, on the other side is that there are many people who are very aware of that, who have multiple jobs and money is what's going to happen to them next week. No, you're right. I mean, and, and I think it is, it's really true. We try to have conversations so that people understand. I mean, I knew when I started my production company, I knew so little about finance and budgeting and things like that. And I was lucky because I had some breathing room to make mistakes, but a lot of people are starting smart businesses. You don't have breathing room to make mistakes, right? A make mistake can be fatal. And so, you know, we try to make sure that people get good advice on the front end. <laughs> Unlike me, you could say, let me tell you all about the mistakes I made on a lot of different fronts. So, so yeah, it's been a really fun project, but it's mostly because I think Jean is a great person to work with and she's very smart about finance and she's very, she's really, really just kind of brilliant about, you know, understanding how money works. And I'm much more of the, let's talk about how money's applied. You're not going to be handing out the stock tips. That's what You know saying. what? I I do have some things that I think are good investments. We actually, I'm a big investment. I'm a big investor in real estate and only because of, I think, dumb luck. Right before the pandemic, I was in Florida in this little cute neighborhood and they had all these little cute houses like bungalows that not very expensive. And I do a lot of horseback riding. So I was down in Florida and I was like, oh, I should buy one of these little bungalows. They're so inexpensive. Like it'd be better. It actually would be worth it rather than staying in a hotel as I do for months at a time. And I did. And then of course the pandemic happened and suddenly my little $200,000 bungalow has become worth a million something. <laughs> so I've become very good at investing in real estate actually, but, but I am trying to figure out crypto and I'm trying just to understand it. Yeah. So no, you don't want any of my tips. I've got nothing for you. I have a young woman who's just got a, one of my scholars that we, we send girls off to school and she just got a job with enough money to like put it away. And I, you know, now we're working on her budget and I'm like, so here's the money that goes to pay for the stuff, rent, you know, then now you have this category of that can go for fun. You have X number of dollars is fun horseback riding lessons. She wants to learn how, you know, it's fun going out with your friends. You got to figure out, you know, and then there's another chunk that's your investment money. And you got to just start now figuring out what is it that you can pack away from your paycheck every single, you know, every other, I guess people get paid twice a month and really start investing. And at some point you're going to need somebody who says, what are the goals, right? How do we get there? I mean, that stuff's very complicated and you really want people who are kind of on your side and helping you figure it out. So yeah, it's been a fun show to do. And Jean and I really enjoy it. What advice, because I said a few things to the sixth grader, mm -hmm. what advice would you give to a sixth grader who wanted to be a a journalist. Oh my gosh. First of all, sixth grade is a great time to think about it. Number one, I'm sure you have a phone. I'm sure you have a computer. So there are so many things that you can start doing right this moment that you don't need an official job. When I was a kid, I used to in sixth grade, actually, we used to have a family newspaper and basically we'd run around the house and torture people and ask them to tell us what they were working on and what they were doing. And they try to get us out of their hair. But now like any kid who's interested, they could be doing a podcast. They literally could listen to a podcast and say, oh, this is a structure of a podcast. You can also Google how to do a podcast. 
and create a podcast. You might have five people listening to it, but more likely you're going to have a whole bunch of people in your school. Your podcast could be about guinea pig, could be whatever holds your interest that you think could be a podcast, do a podcast. Then put yourself on camera if this young person wants to be an on-air reporter. Start reporting. Do a four-minute show once a week. Here's what's happened this week in my world. You know, it'll be give you skills in writing. By the way, there's a teleprompter app that's, I think it's free, that I have on my phone that I use when I need a teleprompter. So you can practice using a teleprompter and have a teleprompter app on your phone and you just write the scripts that you want to use. And you could do a four-minute newscast once a week and update everybody what's happening in your world. And you will go so far. If you're doing that in sixth grade, think about how good you're going to be. Most of us had to learn all of that on the job. You know, sixth grader doing that, I think will be just so way ahead of the game and they'll learn how to write and they'll learn how to connect themselves to their story and they'll learn how to put themselves in their story. What's your role as the reporter in this story? What do you want it to do? What do you want it to be? And also you make a lot of mistakes, better to make them, you know, in front of family and friends than to make them network television. Trust me on that. The sixth grader is already doing a weekly report for the announcements. So she's already, she's on her way yep. on that path. And I did, you mentioned uh, starting a podcast or whatever. I, I interviewed a, how old was she? 14 or 15 year old girl in California who, who was sending out like newsletters, a daily newsletter for teenagers. Amazing. I mean, and think how much work a daily news, you know, why I don't do a newsletter too much work. Yeah. Too oh, much yeah. work. I mean, imagine that. So I think there's so many more opportunities today for young people just because of social media and the internet than there was certainly when we started, right? Where it was a very closed door and you couldn't really do anything. And I never could shoot anything unless someone had a camera and was willing to, you know, shoot me doing something on camera. That was the way I built my resume tape. So now that's not the way to do it anymore. It's amazing. So good for her. If that's something she wants to explore, just jump in and go do it. That would be my advice. Yeah, it's great advice. Soledad, thank you. This has been a joy to talk to you. Good luck with the radio show slash podcast. Good luck with uh, everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.